Maybe we can just do until if anybody had any questions from the what we, we the last session, just while we're waiting for folks to come back in. Well, I didn't get to what we're enunciating yet, but yes, that's part of it. Yeah, I, I realized I didn't, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't come back around to my point, but yeah, we're getting to it. Yeah. So, what's another word for renunciation? What's the? What's I like the to. Um, I forget the Tibetan word, but I, I like to use renunciation mind. I like to put the two together because it's not just, it's not an action necessarily, it's a state of mind. It's like a state of being. So then I think that's the most accurate. And then being, being really clear, like what are we renouncing with that, what in that state of mind is coming up, and that's what I'm going to talk about now. Uh, but um, essentially, um, I just want to wait for everyone. Uh, but... Um, Essentially, it's like back to that term of reliability, of getting a bigger picture within the Buddhist framework of what's really reliable and not reliable for happiness and suffering. You know, reliable for what we, we all want to feel good. You know, <laughs> we all want happiness. We all want to avoid suffering. So what's going to have long-term reliability in those ways, right? Even though enlightenment is out of both. But enlightenment, you can talk about as sort of a sense uh, uh, they also say like a sugatagarbha, which is like a bliss gone one, but it's not the type of a bliss of normal bliss. It's like a bliss because there's no more <laughs> suffering. So then there's a bliss from that sense of not suffering anymore. But it's not necessarily happiness either. But either way, my point is uh, renunciation mind has to do more with uh, understanding like, yeah, what's not reliable or sustainable. Uh, for for long term well being from this perspective, from a Buddhist perspective. So, in terms of action, which comes first, giving up beer keg parties <laughs> or renunciation mind? I think renunciation mind is more important. No, I didn't ask that. Oh, I asked which comes first, giving up or or renunciation mind. Comes first when though, like in the path or like for an individual, like? For an individual. Like when you're trying to give up keg parties, you mean? <laughs> no, just, I guess then my question would be on the path. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely renunciation. on the path for an individual. What, what comes first? Right, so if you're going to talk to somebody about renunciation, which has a whole hair shirt issue in Christianity, Mm. The idea of renunciation with the hair shirt view, with the ground being the hair shirt, is that you have to give up X, Y, and Z in order to achieve A. Yeah, and that's not that's a misunderstanding of renunciation. It's yeah. So on the other hand, no. you did give up your music. Yeah. And so which came first for you for him? Well, no, but I gave it up because of being a monk, so it's a little bit different. A monk. So which came first, wanting to have the purity of your practice unimpeded, mm -hmm. or giving giving up the music? Yeah, definitely. That's where ethics come in, right? Because then there's certain ethical behavior we adopt 
because we're not renunciation mind is an, isn't an easy thing to develop quickly. So then sometimes we have boundaries. That's why there's Buddhist ethics, right? Because then there's the Buddhist ethics of not killing, not stealing, you know, not engaging sexual misconduct, etc. Not lying so that as a framework. No, that's a method to develop renunciation. Because again, renunciation, this is the whole point I'm trying to make and what I was going to tie together now. So renunciation gets misunderstood as an act rather than a state of mind. That's why I add renunciation mind to it. Because it's not a thing you do, it's the mind state that you have. Of understanding, okay, like, placing my happiness in ice cream is a stupid thing. Like, I'm not going to get happiness from it. I can get pleasure and I can enjoy it, but am I going to get some permanent type of uh, 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 completely reliable happiness? No, because when I start eating the ice cream, I mean, I literally do this meditation. I'm joking, but I'm also being kind of serious. So when I start eating it, it's pleasurable, but then it changes. And at some point, it actually becomes pain. It actually becomes suffering at some point because I get full. I'm, you know, I'm kind of like bloated from all the milk, you know. Which is that someone who is well versed in the path and has a strong meditation practice mm -hmm. has renunciation mind as part of the practice. It has arisen as a byproduct of the practice. Yeah. The practice is based on ethics. Mm -hmm. which is a kind of renunciation in itself. Mm -hmm. Is it? So it is for some people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, true. So, um... So is that renunciation mind? The reason I'm asking is that I think renunciation with a hair shirt as the ground is so much a part of our cultural uh, buzz. It just is background noise, mm -hmm. right? Like we're sinful. Mm -hmm. And that then as Buddhist teachers or students, we start talking about renunciation and, and my personal experience of renunciation mind is that and it's a great way to phrase it, is that it starts out quite conceptual mm -hmm. and that as your uh, practice thickens and deepens and widens, there are things you just don't want to do anymore. Yeah, and I think so, the question, I'm answer, I already answered you, but the, yeah. this will answer it for sure. Yeah. I think you're, you're trying to get, like, in one of those multiple choice tests, you want an A or B check, it's C, all of the above. Uh -huh. You see? Yeah. Because there's many methods for different beings. So then, you know, one method is to put a boundary and then learn from that boundary what's creating suffering and what's not. Another method is just to practice and let the renunciation mind come naturally out of the practice, which is more what you're saying. So both are valid from a Buddhist perspective. Both are taught. No, one's not better than the other. It just depends on the practitioner. Yeah. Great. Yeah. But I, I will speak to Sally's hair shirt description that renunciation, just the word, is almost a third rail. Yeah, that's where... Uh, you immediately recoil mm -hmm. 
and and don't want to and, and keep going somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So, but beer keg parties or we we've spoken to things that we've given up gladly. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the, so that, well, that's where I, again, like this is um no, it actually brings up a broader point, which is like um, and I forgot to say it; it was in my notes before, but like um. So like when we're engaging Dharma, there's three ways we engage it basically through listening contemplating and meditating mm -hmm. and so the listening part is actually when we um, Have to be most mindful of our own biases as they come up, mm -hmm. right? Because the listening part requires an open mind, but a skeptical mind, mm -hmm. but that skepticism doesn't uh, uh, Overload the the open part or the unbiased part. So mostly we're staying unbiased. We're not making a decision while we're listening. The problem is we're so used to like, we hear something and then, and then our image of it comes up and then we can't hear anything else. So the conversation ended. That's not listening to the Dharma. That's becoming one of the three faults of a vessel. So the three faults of a vessel are a vessel that's turned upside down, closed, where nothing can come in. A vessel that's leaky, which I'm mostly a leaky vessel. I'll, I'll, you know, self-disclose, meaning information comes in, but it goes out again as soon as I leave the door, right? And the third type is a, is a vessel filled with dirty water. So whatever comes in turns into dirty water. So normally they would say that dirty water is like having a bad motivation, like someone, I guess, in Tibet and some Asian countries, you'd have people who would try to learn all the Buddhist philosophy so they could go like destroy their brother in debate, you know, and like, <laughs> like embarrass him, right? I don't think we suffer from that that much culturally. <laughs> Maybe some of us who are like academics, but not that much. Uh, but I think what we do have is the sense where we have our bias, which is like muddy water. And if we're not mindful of that bias, then everything that comes in there gets mucked up. So I, I raised that as a point of, point of view, as I forgot to mention in the beginning, of just when we're listening to Dharma, staying open like that. And so yes, there are English words for sure that are triggering for people, but the word emptiness also triggers people a lot. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, it's really the best word to describe it. Literally, that's what shunyata means. I mean, you could say shunyata means like infinite or zero or all this stuff, but really it's in Tibetan, it's tongpa ni, emptiness. So it's a very good word for it in English. It just has to be explained. Same with renunciation mind. Because the word renunciation, you're, you know, correct. Like in, in the Western sense, it's, yeah, it's like pushing away, getting rid of. And I'll be very honest, in Buddhism, that exists as well. When you're a monk, when you're a nun, you just you make a boundary and you say, I'm not going to do this. So it is a valid path. We just have a rejection to it because we have this notion, culturally, that we should be free to do whatever the fuck we want. <laughs> see? So that's the bias. You see what I'm saying? Now, I don't question it to like then beat ourselves up or like judge any of you or, or stop the conversation there. Because what I'm more interested in is, oh, okay, we see the bias, then can we investigate that? Not to destroy it, but just to get more knowledge, more wisdom from the experience. That's where I think it's so important. Because we, we have cultural interpretations and lenses that when we leave them alone and don't see, we, we don't know we have the lens, it actually really prevents us from gaining deeper experience in the Dharma. I've, I've found personally now that, that that's something for you individually to explore. So, and this is a very small one. It's not a big deal, right? But just pointing it out. But anyways, um, uh, so renunciation, it has to be 
understood what we're talking about. I mean, some people have proposed different words. I guess we could use different words. It's not a big deal. But I think when we add mind to it, it becomes much more clear, right? Because we're not talking about an action, we're talking about a state of mind. So therefore, within Buddhism, whether we're talking Hinayana, Vajrayana, or Mahayana, it really is the act coming out of a state of seeing meaninglessness in samsara, that I do not want to perpetuate my samsaric existence anymore, and therefore I'm going to go, I'm going to be a monk. I don't want to per per perpetuate <laughs> my own cyclic existence anymore, my samsaric experience anymore, so therefore I'm going to go to a rave. Actually, both are fine. It depends on the person's individual renunciation mind. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of our renunciation mind, too, should trigger us to go do experiences and things we don't want to do. Like, like go into spaces and places that are a little bit more uh, frightening, you know, less comfortable. That's why I think the handshake practice is a very accessible way to do this, because we're going into those spaces in our feeling world that aren't fun, that aren't, so people want to do chid and all these fancy schmancy Buddhist things and have drums and, you know, uh, bones and stuff like that. That's a wonderful practice, by the way, if like you want to do it authentically. But really the chud ground of our emotions, I think, is more powerful sometimes. Like the chud ground of going into our wounds in the body, where that's where the real <clears throat> demons are. You see what I'm saying? So, anyways, <laughs> my long-winded way of saying, and I'm going to... Now, I didn't say it, I didn't end the last se session talking about why we're developing this renunciation mind, right? But I'll get to that in a second, but yeah. Well, just a technicality. I heard hair shirt Christian. I never heard that said before. What is that? Yeah, do you know? Oh, oh well, uh, the, uh, the ascetics in early Christianity, in order to subdue their uh, ego clinging, would wear shirts made of hair underneath their clothing. It was extremely uncomfortable and it itched worse than wool. <laughs> and, you know, it was like the self-flagellation that's, yeah, yeah, it's the same thing. So it's just the, it's, it's just an old, and it's, it's been in every religion in the world. It's not just Christianity where People think that by sub they can subdue their ego by by uh, beating up on their bodies. Yeah, yeah, and that and, in all and just to be clear, like if you guys read the story of the Buddha, his life story, he directly refuted that within his own practice and life. So when he's talking about renunciation mind, he's not talking about that because he directly said no. You're not within those two extremes of overindulgence or self-flagellation and you know punishing the body. And he tried it. He tried yeah, he tried it. Yeah. Exactly. So and he found it did not conquer this this notion of, of uh, ego-centered identity, right? So so renunciation mind, so and suffering and all this. So why do we meditate on Buddhists? You know, I think for for a long time we we just do it and then there's some results there. But it's also important, like, what's our aim? And the first aim is just seeing the unreliability of, of the nature of samsara and how it is. So samsara being cyclic existence, something that, uh, from a religious perspective, is uh, uh, where we've incarnated, incarnated in many bodies over millions and billions of lives with beginningless time, right, since beginningless time. And 
every time we take on the aggregates, those aggregates in their very nature, uh, at least the way we're experiencing them in that life, is in the nature of suffering, where we have to, you know, be born, get sick, age, and die, and experience all those subtler sufferings within those lifetimes. So that's the bigger picture of what we're renouncing. We're renouncing the, the act the activities, the states of mind, and the ways of being that perpetuate that cyclic existence. Now more subtly and specifically, what we're renouncing is that cyclic existence that exists in each moment, when we're grasping in each moment and having a dualism each, each second and as each moment goes by. That is a more Vajrayana take on it, right? But either way, you know, whether we believe in reincarnation or rebirth or not, um, the principle is still there and it's still something for us to chew on, right? And we can still see it in our lives. And then we have to gain conviction that there is a, uh, a space or a way of being or a way of coming into that's beyond that. So that's where, so the renunciation and all this talk and chewing and you know, meditating on suffering is just not to dwell in it, obviously. It's to move our minds into doing something about it, right? And engaging the path of practice, engaging listening, contemplation, and meditation in order to achieve enlightenment. And then in the Mayana path, and because we're talking about bodhicitta today, doing that in order to serve all beings, right? So the, the motivation becomes even more important. But what we find is that if we just skip to that without chewing enough on renunciation mind, just within our samsara, within our samsara and understanding the nature of our suffering, there can also be a bypass there where we don't have the conviction and fortitude to follow through when things get real. You see what I'm saying? So that's why it's a huge preliminary and a lot of people enter the Vajrayana path first in, when they access Tibetan Buddhism. And a lot of Westerners go for the Dzogchen, go for the Mahamudra. Actually, the most important thing is meditating on death and impermanence. Most important thing. Most important thing is meditating on the nature of suffering. For many, for most of us. It doesn't, ma it doesn't mean we can't start with uh, Dzogchen or something like that, but we have to go back and practice that. If that develops naturally out of Dzogchen practice, then maybe you don't have to go back. I've never heard of anyone that that happens, including Rinpoche's and Lamas. None of them do that. All of them train. Of course, they get pointing out, they get empowerments, they do all that kind of stuff. Vajrayana, you know, all the bells and whistles. But then they go back and they practice all these things. They're trained in a gradual way as well. Why? It's so important because it creates the basis the, to see the worldview, this perspective of like, what are we even doing here? You see what I'm saying? Otherwise, the practices I'm telling you, they all get sucked into well-being. They all get sucked into wanting to feel good at the end of the day. If we don't develop sufficient renunciation mind. I'm being a bit tough today, to be honest. I'm just in that kind of mood. Maybe it's the weather or something. Or maybe it's just like... With the eggnog ice cream. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what it was, yeah. Or maybe it's just because, you know, I've, you know, I feel you guys are, have had enough training and experience. We can be real. You know, I don't have to sugarcoat this for you, right? Let's get real if we want to have more movement in our practice. So renunciation mind, I hope that's clear by now. You know? The first type of renunciation is just under, understanding and in our state of mind, in our state of motivation, that this is, it's unreliable when we rely on a subject-object experience with phenomena. And, and rely on that duality to produce happiness for ourselves. It just won't. It's like every time I go to a Pine and Jerry's, I think I'm going to get a different kind of feeling than I did before, and every time it's the same by about the sixth or eighth bite, right? It's the same. That first one's pretty good. 
but see, it's, it's just more insidious because it feels good. But you know. So again, we're not trying to also self-flagellate, like Sally's pointing out. We're not trying to then not enjoy life. You know, it's not solemn. Actually, I've found the more I meditate on renunciation mind in this kind of way, um, actually there's more, like, there's more availability to just being with whatever I'm there with in the moment and can enjoy, you know? But it's tricky, and there's different ways to work with renunciation mind, too. I just want to be clear. There is ways working more from a Shravakiana or Hinayana perspective, more from a Mayana perspective, more from a Vajrayana perspective. So I'll just briefly say, Shravakiana is clear because we've been talking about that mostly. That is the path more of like, okay, I'm going to get really pissed off at this person if I see them, so I'm going to stay away from them, right? So we purposely adjust our ethics not to, be tr not to trigger negative emotion. So that's like, you know, when I was a monk, you have vows. I have a lot of attachment to sex, so maybe stay away from sex for a little while. Work with the mind as, as all my attachment is coming up, right? Because it doesn't mean I'm not engaging that, so I'm not going to think about it. I think about it more. <laughs> but then I get, it's in my laboratory of here, where I'm not acting it out. Therefore, usually when we're acting something out, we're not, we're, we're sort of trying to get rid of it. We're not engaging it, right? We're not learning about it. We're not gaining wisdom. We're sort of uh, gaining more ignorance, for most of us. So anyways, that's the path of Shravakyana, right? Avoiding. Same as lay people. We have lay vows of not killing, not stealing, uh, uh, Avoiding sexual misconduct, avoiding intoxicants, or getting overly intoxicated, and avoiding uh, like lying. Yeah, so that's also like tough to do sometimes. Sometimes like it's easier to lie, right? Like white lies, these kinds of things. I don't think it's talking about that. It's talking more about lying about attainments. But anyways, Mayana. Now our interest becomes so much more. Uh, we're so much more interested in the in the in in the happiness benefit awakening of others, we just become less interested in our own happiness, our own attachment, our own suffering, all of that. We just, we're just not as interested in it. So renunciation mind comes out of that, right? But of course, that's built on the idea that we want awakening for the benefit of others. So we still want awakening. We don't, we're not just satisfied to remain in the mud, right? Vajrayana now gets even more interesting based off of the first two motivations, the both the Shravakyana and the Mayana. Then Vajrayana, it's like, bring it on, you know? So we go right into the klesha itself, right into the emotion, getting really dirty with it. But within that, we find wisdom. So it's like getting into a mud pit, but you, no mud gets on you because you recognize the nature of mud, right? So it's very different, much more difficult, you can see. So the first one, even though it seems not as sexy, it's actually the most accessible one to us most of the time. Right? It's the one that we can usually apply quite easily. The second one, a little more challenging, and the third one, very, very challenging. Right? I'm, and the third one, I hope you understand what I mean. It's not just jumping into like attachment and then like, oh, I can feel all attached. No, recognizing actually attachment is empty, so therefore it, everything self-liberates. It's very difficult. You have to have very strong Mahamudra Zokshan practice. Very developed. Anyways. Side note. <laughs> Shravakayana, yeah. Shravakayana, yeah. Uh, some people use the term Hinayana, but some people don't like that term because they think it's derogatory. It's actually not, but I don't use it in public because of that reason, because sensitivity police these days. So. <laughs> Anyways. So 
So we're on Seishin Mind, right? So do we all understand like why that would be a necessary preliminary for developing bodhicitta? Why? Because <laughs> I want to see if I did my job, like if, if, if I got it across. Or maybe you already know. <laughs> Sorry, I'm putting you guys on the spot. No, it's good. Unless you're, you just have to wait a little oh, bit. Oh, I'm good. I'm, we could wait all day long. <laughs> you can't have compassion for other people unless you've protected um, yourself. And you have no, if you don't have any, unless you have no self. So, so bodhicitta is, is what? Like, what is it aiming for? Let's start there, and then we can work backwards. What's that mind we're aiming for? And it's okay if... Partially. So that's so. What's the other part of it? You just have part of it. Someone else want to fill in the other part? But it's okay. That's good. <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. <laughs> so I'll answer this, and then we'll 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 get to the other question, right? So. Really, it's, it's a very specific mind based on loving kindness and compassion of wishing to attain awakening in order to benefit all sentient beings, to help them awaken, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. So that's the key point, right? No, it's okay. But so, so if we don't, so now that missing piece, wishing our own awakening, because like, it's just like a doctor. Like, how are we going to operate on someone who needs heart surgery if we have no idea how the hell to do that? Or we just have a conceptual idea and we've never done it before. So that's why the awakening piece is so important, the aspiration for that. But that aspiration is more about serving others and helping them to awaken. Our own awakening is just a tool. It's just like, cool, I just need that to help them, but right? But it has to come. So then with that, what do we need for that? That's the point. So this is why, why, why we need renunciation mind. Because that, that winnows out the chaff. Yeah. So that you are able to connect to your own uh, loving kindness, your own uh, gets your interference out of the way. Yeah, is why the renunciation is such a strong piece for the, the self awakening. So we could say we need we need the wish for that, right? And we develop that wish by under like, just as like, if you don't know your leg is broken. Like there's no way or there'd be no way to know I need to go to the doctor to get it fixed. It's very similar here. It's very practical, actually. So like that's what I'm getting back to. Renunciation mind is very practical. It's very like when we develop it, otherwise, why would we put effort into practice? This is my point because it gets down to the very point I made earlier, which is why are we practice? Why are we meditating in the first place? And a lot of this gets confused where we're like, oh, I'm on the path to enlightenment. But no, actually, like, internally, unconsciously, we're just on the path to, I don't know what the hell I'm on the path to, I just like this. You see what I'm saying? Or, I want to feel good from my meditation. And again, there's no knock to those. It's just knowing that, making that conscious. Yeah. I also think the piece of um, picking away at the ingrained Christian 
upbringing of, of what renunciation means uh, is helpful because it allows you, allows me to look at what you neatly shied away from. Yeah. With, with, uh, so adding mind to it, simple as it sounds, is, is really helpful. Yeah. Uh, and readdressing it and bringing it up so that you know that you have the a muscle to continue to look at it. Yeah. That is uh, connecting the. I hate to say need, but connect uh, connecting the supportive value of renunciation to the, the supportive supportive uh, supportive values. What you said. I, I did. did and no, no, no. I did say supportive supportive value, value Great. of okay. of renunciation mind. To helping you, um, like, exactly. It's like, oh, that was a light bulb. That's it. Yeah, it's supportive. That's a yeah. that's a nice way to put it. And I would say, like, we have to almost become obsessed with with uh, uh, uncovering reality, just as it is. And the first thing we that's most accessible to us is just relative reality. Mm-hmm. Like, what's my experience from my body right now? Emptiness and all that is is tough, but we can see like if we're just. A lot of the times we don't want to because we want to believe something else, you know? I, I'm sorry to say that, but that's true, right? I mean, myself included. Mm-hmm. I want to believe I, I'm in love with my new shoes, my new boots I got for winter, and I want to believe they're going to stay, like, perfect, and I'm always going to love them. In two weeks, they're probably, I'm probably going to get, you know, sore feet, and I'm going to not like them anymore. So it's just it's like that, you know? And that's a simple example, but that goes through to everything. And... So this is where they use the term ma-rikpa, which again could be a triggering word because it translates as ignorance. But this is what the ignorance connotes, you know, is that we're just either unwilling to see or we don't know. We just have a blind spot. So the Buddhist path, the reason we chew on all this and contemplate it is so it becomes more conscious, right? Because how would it? It's not like people go around... Come on, let's be honest. Like, like people go around like praising, you know, and, and making advertisements, and you know, trying to convince us that that everything's great, you know, in certain ways. And especially aspects of our culture really don't like uncovering, like the pulling the blankets off. It's really like uncomfortable, and people work hard and spend a lot of money to not do that, right? So as Buddhists, it's our job, but we shouldn't do it for someone else. I mean, we shouldn't force them, I should say that. We, we're just doing it for ourselves. It's a little so, bit unkind to force someone. I, I, I'd like to speak a little bit to uh, Noralee's supportive value and uh, tie it into the question I asked you about renunciation, because I think one of the things in terms of, of our felt progress on the path is that our, our practice starts out small and intermittent, I mean, it might start out huge and then sort of putter, peter out, but at any rate, so we'll just say it starts small and intermittent and it gets more and more regular, longer and longer, and finally we're at a point where the supportive value of arranging our life so meditation happens, mm-hmm. that's renunciation line. That's saying, I am not going to do X because meditation is more important to my life. So that just keeps going and going. That's just the first felt renunciation out of our practice. But then it goes on further and further. I no longer want to 
associate with Joe and Julia because their uh, uh, incorrect speech, their gossip, is corrosive to my practice, to my belief that you should take care in how you speak to people because it's really hurtful. So all of those very practical ways that looking outside and saying, no, I don't want that anymore because of what is going on interior in my practice. That is renunciation mind brought on from the practice. So I just yeah, and just to, to add that. Sure, and just, slightly. yeah, just to add on, I would say like, um, and it's just like over, overall, you're just seeing the faults of samsara. So like, it has to come from that, like seeing, wow, this is really like that. And that can only come from one's own conviction really chewing on the teachings, you know, and really reading sutras, reading commentaries. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, so anyways, moving on. <laughs> Otherwise, we're never going to get to Bodhicitta, right? <laughs> Tibetan Buddhism is famous for like all the preliminaries, all this, 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 and then by the end, the Lama just goes and does really quickly like the main topic. <laughs> so anyways, but you can see, because it's important, right? It's sort of like... Um, like if we don't prepare ourselves to exercise, doing the right kind of kinds of warm-ups, the exercise doesn't have the kind of efficacy we're looking for. It's very similar here. Okay, so the next uh, preliminary. <laughs> I promise there's just one more. But this one is actually a main one, and this we're going to meditate on this too, um, is immeasurable equanimity. So that's also a preliminary here. So um, equanimity here, like I said earlier, is working with partiality and bias. I also add in a term from one of my friends. He uses the term limiting beliefs. I really like that term. So we're going to use that in our meditation today. So working with our limiting beliefs. And here we're mostly working with our limiting beliefs of others, right? Viewing certain people as close ones or dear ones. Viewing certain people as like kind of neutral figures, what we call a stranger or someone like, okay, take it or leave it, whatever. And then enemies or people we dislike or who annoy us, right? I think the word enemy is a little outdated. It's probably more like people who annoy us or really we really dislike. So, um, like I said earlier, in this context, this meditation is on the distinction between a friend and enemy. We don't have to eliminate the concept of a friend or an enemy. Uh, we're merely working with the partiality arising from our attachment and aversion, right? So equanimity is, in this context, I do want to point out one thing before I go further. Equanimity means something a little bit different when it's not immeasurable. So on the Theravada path, equanimity has a slightly different connotation. So this gets confusing, so confused sometimes, where equanimity has more of a connotation of non-attachment in the Theravada path. Here, when we add immeasurable to it, it's more talking uh, a Mayana interpretation, and it refers more to working with the partiality and working with aversion and attachment, right? So there's a slight difference there. Um, so then based on the view that some people are, are your friends and some are your enemies. So we're mostly hitting at that view. Um, so here you have the meditation where you, you, know, you imagine like a friend, enemy, and stranger and meditate on the different relationships to them and why we view some as a stranger, why we view some as close. And or sorry, not the uh, categorization, but more the feeling. Why do we have attachment? to the one who's close, and why do we have hatred towards the enemy? And we're really contemplating getting down to the roots of that. So I won't say much because we'll meditate on that. I'll guide us through. Uh, 
And then um, I want to just talk a little bit about the word immeasurable. Immeasurable or boundless also has the connotation of we're working with, uh, it's going beyond just this, this nature of or fixed identity. So immeasurable or boundless has a quality of like encompassing uh, a boundless amount of sentient beings. And then we're also eroding at this sense of fixation or uh, true existence, which has an immeasurable quality as well when you get into emptiness. So, so then bodhicitta, so when developing it, there's a, f a few main methods, and I'm going to focus on two today. I hope we have time to do just a little bit of both. Um, I also see like people are probably getting tired, <laughs> so it's kind of a, maybe a lot to, to do a, a lot of things at this point, but we'll see. Um, so before I introduce those approaches, um, the two mental factors of bodhicitta, uh, what we're developing is both a sincere aspiration to attain enlightenment, so we already pointed this out, I'm just recapping it, and then the altruistic intention to do so for the sake of others, right? So it's both uh, a wish for our own awakening, but that awakening is in line with our altruistic intention to serve others and help them in their awakening. So then um, enlightenment itself, this is because another reason we develop bodhicitta is because enlightenment itself is based on two types of beings or merit. We sometimes call them merit fields in, in Tibetan Buddhism, like a field of merit or a field of qualities. One is all enlightened beings, right? So this is where, from a traditional Buddhist perspective, we supplicate all enlightened beings, we ask for their blessings, we ask for their help, we, um, we make offerings to, to, to create merit, uh, which is a different, I won't have time to go into the, like why and the reasoning, but anyways, maybe another time. So that's a field of merit because of the, the nature of their realization, because of what they've attained. And it's, it's similar to like when we're looking to be a really good doctor, you know, we're going to look up to and look towards those who we admire, who are really good doctors, right? Very similar. Then the second kind of merit field is sentient beings themselves. Just all of us, you know, in this room, all sentient beings that exist throughout all worlds, all places in the universe, right? So this is the other merit field, because if it wasn't for sentient beings, there would be no way to attain enlightenment. There would be no way to develop bodhicitta, right? So it's based on others that we can develop loving kindness. Correct? Yeah? So often we call this the two types of merit fields, and as an object of helping us towards enlightenment, both are equal. Because without either one, we can't attain enlightenment. Of course, in realization, enlightened beings are much different. So. These two methods I want to work with uh, uh, for the rest of the time, now getting really into the practices of how to develop relative bodhicitta, are first, uh, one, one is called the seven points of cause and effect instruction, and the, and the other one's called equalizing and exchanging self, uh, sorry, equalizing and exchanging ourselves for others, right? So the first one is a bit more of an analytical meditation, and I'm just going to briefly review the steps, and then we'll just do it as a guided meditation, so you can just dive in to the practice. So the seven points are first recognizing um, beings as having been one's mother. So we'll, we'll discuss that a little bit, yeah? Because that uh, requires quite a bit of thought and contemplation. The second point is recalling the kindness of those beings, right? So we imagining them when they were our mothers, etc. 
The third is uh, we, we resolve to repay their kindness. So we, we feel a great joy and uh, gratitude towards them. So we wish to repay their kindness. The fourth is um, developing then an affectionate love towards them, closeness and warmth. And then the fifth is developing a compassion that's connected in with renunciation mind. This is why it's so important. Because by this point, we understand what is going on with our own samsara. And therefore, we can also see, wow, this being who has been my mother in many lifetimes is going through the very same thing. Therefore, it's not just a compassion of like, poor thing, her, she got fired. No, it's like, this being has been circling for billions of lives, like being eaten by things and doing, having all kinds of horrible things happen to them. So you see, and then they're mostly, I don't mean to be so extreme, but then like also just mired in ignorance. That's the main thing we have uh, compassion for, just how mired in ignorance ourselves and others are. You see? So this is why it's important to develop renunciation mind. Otherwise, it's a very limited compassion. It's very like superficial. So then the sixth step is a special intention, which means we're actually taking personal responsibility, meditating on, I will, I will, I will attain awakening to, to liberate all beings. It's that special intention, we're taking personal responsibility. And then the seventh is the actual cultivation uh, of the aspiration to attain full enlightenment. So it's like based on these previous six, we then develop the result, which is the mind wishing to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all. Now I say this as a mind state, meaning it's first a conceptual attitude where it's an idea in our minds, but we've made it very, very strong and certain, and it's almost like a passion, then it begins to be an embodied emotional process where it becomes less conceptual. And when that arises without thinking, the need to think about it, when it just comes, that's when it's called uncontrived bodhicitta. And that's at the point when we start to enter the bhumis of a bodhisattva, or not the, sorry, not the bhumis, the paths of a bodhisattva. So when it's, un, when it's uncontrived, right? So here, this type of method, we're working with like an analytical meditation. We're working with building, like stacking or scaffolding our, our view, right, through the practice. So each of these steps is a meditation on itself, in itself, that could be developed over a really long period of time. But we're going to kind of go through all of them today. <laughs> Does it sound okay? Yeah? So instead of kind of commenting on recognizing, the first one is the toughest one for a lot of people, uh, but I'm going to just, I'll do a guided meditation on it and then you can go home and think about it. 